Encore episode, why we think we are getting good healthcare when we aren't. In this episode, Alex Akers and I speak with Dr. Robert Pearl. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. In this podcast, originally published early last year, Alex Akers and I had a chance to speak with Dr. Robert Pearl about his book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We Are Usually Wrong. Besides being an author, Dr. Pearl is former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group. He's a frequent keynote speaker, and he is also the host of a podcast called Fixing Healthcare. Here's what Dr. Pearl said at the recent health conference in Vegas, and I'm editorializing a little bit here. Dr. Pearl said, day after day, patients and their families experience the unnecessary frustrations and heartaches that are so rife in American healthcare. Mistreatment is certainly a continuum, but in all of its manifestations, it's pretty much nothing less than rampant. I mean, how else do Americans manage to pay more than twice as much per patient for a health system that ranks 37th in the world? There are definitely bright spots and there are definitely great men and women working within healthcare. So I do not, and I am certain Dr. Pearl does not mean to be all doom and gloom, but we've got some realities to deal with here. There's a simple answer to the question, what happens if we fail to change? Disruption will happen. While the pace of healthcare disruption in many sectors hasn't exactly set world speed records, it's inevitable. And according to Dr. Pearl, status quo healthcare providers will lament their decision not to have embraced change sooner. To wrap our heads around this, Dr. Pearl suggests that there are four must-haves, four pillars to get American healthcare industry back on track. Spoiler alert, those four pillars are number one, integration, number two, pay for value. Number three, modernize our approach to technology. And number four, clinician and physician-led organizations. My name is Alex Akers. And this is Stacey Richter. And this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Dr. Robert Pearl, welcome to Relentless Health Value. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dr. Pearl, you've recently written a book and I want to start just by dissecting the title of your book, it's Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and why we're usually wrong. And I should note that all the funds are going to Doctors Without Borders, which is great. But you chose the word good, not even great. And so I want to start just by getting your perspective on how bad the problem is in healthcare. So the problem for American healthcare is very significant. I begin the book by talking about my father, Jack Pearl. He worked his way through college and dental school. When World War II broke out, he could have stayed safely behind American lines. Instead, he volunteered for the 101st Airborne. He parachuted on D-Day. He and his troop were captured by the Germans. He led a daring escape through the dark forest, two nights in a row, bringing everyone back safely. My father was a very energetic man. And one day, he experienced something he had never felt before. And that was tiredness. He went to the physician's office, and the doctor diagnosed a hemolytic anemia. He had his spleen taken out, and my brother, who is the chairman of anesthesia at Stanford, and I, as as physicians, handpicked his doctors. My father lived half of the year in New York and half of the year in Florida, and we picked doctors at each location who were expert, well-trained, and every one of them knew that when your spleen is taken out, you're at high risk for an infection from a pneumococcus. 
And they all knew that there was a very effective vaccine. But the ones in New York thought the ones in Florida had given him the vaccine. The ones in Florida thought New York. Primary care thought specialty care. Specialty care thought primary care. And in the end, he never had it. A couple of years later, he came out to visit my brother and me. He had dinner at my house. And next morning at 5 a.m., my brother got up to do rounds. He found my father on the floor, unresponsive, raced him to the ICU, spent about 15 days in the hospital total. And although he didn't die in that episode, he died from the complications therein. And of course, the diagnosis was pneumococcal septicemia. What's interesting is that my father was one of 200,000 people that year to die prematurely from a medical error. Add to that the number of people who don't get the preventative care they need and the people who die from preventable complications of chronic disease. We're looking at hundreds of thousands of Americans who die prematurely or unnecessarily every year. When the Commonwealth Fund looked at the 11 most industrialized nations in the world and ranked them on health outcomes, the only category the United States led in, cost. 50% higher than anyone else, last in childhood mortality, last in life expectancy. Yeah, I think that good is an overstatement. What we can say is that our healthcare system lags the rest of the world overall with 37th in overall health based upon third-party objective data analysis. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I loved your book is, you know, my father, different situation, but I felt similarly that, you know, perhaps he hadn't received great care. And I think about that quite a bit. And unfortunately, I think that's pretty emblematic of a lot of people's experiences. And I want to read this quote, which comes from the Lucifer Effect in the Stanford Prison Experiment. And they said, if, if you put good people in a bad place, do the people triumph or does the place corrupt them? The thing that I thought was interesting about what you had written about is that this explains the sort of rampant overtreatment that could be noted in this country. Absolutely. So we have this perception that more is better, uh, despite the amount of information that says that's not always the case. So we spend a lot of money on things that add little value, and we miss things that have value. You know, we think about American healthcare as always being at the cutting edge. Between San Jose and San Francisco, 50 miles, there are 10 programs doing cardiac surgery, 10 hospitals doing cardiac surgery. In three of these hospitals, they do fewer than 300 cases a year. Now think about that. Cardiac surgery, you need a team available every single day because emergencies happen. That means at least 65 days a year, there's no patient, and yet a team is in place. Think about it. They're doing fewer than one case a day. What kind of quality can you have? And certainly, cost is going to be outrageous. And yet, none of the leaders of those hospitals can recognize the solution that they all would come up with in a different context. Put them in my Stanford Graduate School of Business class. Every one of them would say, take the three lowest volume programs, combine them into one. Now you have volume for quality. Now you have volume for efficiency. But they can't see that in the context of their hospital. The loss of prestige changes their perception. It is why I talk about it being mistreated. We think we're getting, getting great health care because we're going to a hospital with a cardiac surgical program, but we're not. 
because actually their volume is inadequate to have the best outcomes. Or look at another great example to me, Bill Clinton, after he was president of the United States, he developed symptoms consistent with chest pain. In the New York area, the greater metropolitan area, the state of New York publishes objective to the third decimal place, risk-adjusted outcomes from cardiac surgery. Remember, Bill Clinton actually started healthcare reform. He knew a lot about this area. He had to have known that this data was easily available. Of the 35 hospitals, the one he picked for his diagnostic care, the second worst out of the 35. And then he goes for surgery, and where does he go? To the hospital with the worst outcomes, picking the surgeon who has the highest complication rate, and guess what happens? He has a complication. Somehow the name, the brand, the marble in the, in the hallway is more important to us than what the objective data says. And as a consequence, people are mistreated. They think they're getting good health care, but they simply are not. So I think the argument would follow that if, if we parachute physicians into a different system, a different context, that we arguably would get better outcomes. You outlined in your book four pillars of that. So if context can change perception and change behavior for the negative, the question I pose is, could it also do it for the positive? And my conclusion is absolutely yes. So imagine two communities, one that is similar to the U.S. healthcare system today that I think of as a 19th century cottage industry, fragmented. Doctors scattered everywhere, hospitals in every small town. It's paid on a piecemeal, a fee-for-service basis. The technology is left over. The information technology is 50 years old. As soon as you're integrated within a specialty, rather than there being the number of physicians simply dependent upon who wants to live in that particular area, you can start to work together to have a logical approach to match the supply of medical care against the demand of the patients that you're treating. And more importantly, what you can start to do is to segment you can start to specialize within each area and make sure that everyone is doing enough of a given procedure, not just for minimum requirements, which is what we do today in the United States, but optimal outcomes. A great example of that to me is inside OBGYN. There are two ways to take out the uterus of a woman who's having a problem. You can do it with a big, long incision, split the muscles, take out the uterus, keep her in the hospital, and then have six weeks in which you tell her, don't lift anything heavier than a shoebox. Or you can do it through endoscopes, these same small telescope-like devices. And in that particular way, the woman can go home usually the same day and be back playing tennis in a week. When I ask the chiefs of OBGYN in Kaiser Permanente, the following question, by the way, they're, all, they're almost all women. How many of these operations would you require someone to have done endoscopically before you would let them operate on you? They all say the same thing, at least two to three a month, 25 to 36 or 40. And yet in the United States today, half of the physicians doing this operation do fewer than 10 a year. As soon as you're integrated, now you change that. Someone specializes in surgery, someone specializes in obstetrics, someone specializes in office procedures. And in each case, you get better quality at lower cost. But even more significantly is the vertical integration between primary care and specialty care, inpatient care and outpatient care. 
A great example of that is when you see a primary care physician. Quite often, when they send you to a specialist, they're really sending you for a very small amount of information. And you could actually get that. In Kaiser Permanente, that's what we did. We had a connection between the primary care physician and the specialist, sometimes on the telephone, sometimes on video. And 40% of the time, the patient's problem could be solved there and then. A great example is dermatology. 70% of the rashes could be taken care of by sending a picture, a digital image to the dermatologist. But you would never do that in the context of the fee-for-service world. What we see is that the medications are not administered right, or the doses are not calculated appropriately, or the care is not there. Something goes wrong and we see patients coming back into the hospital with second and third admissions. Or we often see patients who could have avoided the hospital had intervention been done two days earlier or three days earlier. But because these systems are fragmented and disconnected, in the end, what happens is that patients suffer. Integration is the first pillar, a crucial step towards being able to maximize quality in the most efficient and effective ways. And then you alluded to, I think, the second one, which is pay for value. So how does that relate to the integration that we were just talking about and why is that necessary? So the second pillar is that if you pay people, as we do in most of the United States today, on a fee-for-service basis, what you see is they simply do more. Now, you ask physicians, they're going to deny it. You look at the data, it demonstrates it. The number of spine surgeries done has little correlation to the severity of illness in the community, but it directly correlates to the number of spine surgeons that sit, that practice in a given area. Increase the number of spine surgeons and you will increase the amount of surgery done. Why is that? That's what happens in a fee-for-service world. As opposed to that, when you pay for value, what ends up happening is now you have an alignment between what the patient needs and what the physician does. You have incentives to actually prevent disease in the first place. This is going to really shock the listeners. Those hospitals with the highest complication rates in the operating room have the highest profitability. Why is that? Because in some systems, you do not get paid twice, but in other places, you get paid more, not just for creating the problem, but for actually then addressing it. A lot of money more. And so the kinds of focus on patient safety, on prevention, on hand washing, on avoiding of hospital-acquired infections, these types of processes are very much reinforced in a system that is capitated or prepaid, as opposed to one that is fee-for-service. We see people getting chemotherapy at end of life who have no chance of getting better in American medicine today. But it's another way to generate that. We see examples of people having heart surgery that is unnecessary, that has been shown to be no better than just taking medication, and yet they still do it. To me, one of the most interesting things has to do with prostate. The prostate sometimes in men develops cancer. And there was a test developed quite a while in the, in the past called the PSA. And the PSA test will pick up cancer. And it also will pick up a lot of false 
positives. In fact, what they find over time is that it picks up a lot more false positives than it does actually picking up true cancer. And that if you look at large populations that have testing versus not testing, the survival, the chances of dying from prostate cancer is very similar whether they have the test or not. Most of the tumors that are found simply by this test prove not to be ones that are life-threatening. And for those who have a false positive, there's a lot of things that need to happen that risk infection and other complications for the patients. There's a process that happened nationally called choosing wisely. Each of the specialties were asked to identify those things that added no value, but added cost to the American healthcare system, the cardiologist, the oncologist, et cetera. The primary care organizations looked at the data on the PSA, and what did they find? They found that this is a test that in most patients should not be done. But where did the urologists conclude? Exactly the opposite. In a situation where you're being paid fee-for-service, you're simply going to embrace those things that reward your specialty. Yeah, I would totally agree that pay for value is definitely a necessary counterbalance to your first pillar, which is integration. Another name for that might be consolidation, which in markets that a consolidation creates a monopoly can actually drive costs. So I think you need both of those first two pillars as counterweights to each other. Alex, why don't you tee up pillar number three? Technology is your third pillar. And so just talk a little bit about, I think, analytics and virtual care are two of the ones that are really interesting. Talk about the role of technology. Technology offers massive opportunities, and yet we're not taking advantage of them today. The technology that we use in most of medical care is left over from 50 years in the past. It's unacceptable that today, the majority of Americans, when they see a physician or go to a hospital, their information is not available. My dad would be alive if all of his physicians had this comprehensive information. We have an electronic system that simply does not bring that data together and make it available for patients. But when it is available, which you start to see, particularly as we're talking in an integrated organization and one that is paid on a prepaid rather than a fee-for-service basis, now you start to see prevention go up. Across the United States today, 40% of strokes are caused by hypertension. Across the United States today, hypertension is only controlled 55% of the time. In the best organizations, it's controlled 90, 95%. What's the difference? The best organizations are integrated and have that data. The colon cancer example. Across the United States today, we still only screen about two-thirds of the patients. In the best organizations, over 90%. And you can go down area by area by area. Data is essential when you want to provide the best care. It's unimaginable to me that any physician would say they can provide you the best quality when they don't have the data. And yet, across the United States today, physicians accept that and as you go to a hospital, they accept the fact that they have to start from the beginning because they have no access to the information coming out of the medical offices. Video. Video is another technology. And one of the problems in many of these technologies like video is that it's actually inexpensive. That sounds very strange. 
But companies like to sell things that are expensive, not things that are inexpensive. In video, what we know is it has multiple opportunities. Number one, doctors and patients. I believe that 30% of what we do in the office today could be done over video. Think about it. You do a surgery and you tell the patient to come back. Why are they coming back? You want to check the wound for infection. You can do that over video. How do you be able to see patients and tell them, here's what you have, and here's the treatment rather than requiring you go to the emergency room? The, the Mid-Atlantic Permanent Medical Group that I was also the CEO of was able to provide ED physicians in the telephone center, in the call center, who were then linked to patients using video, and 60 or 70% of the patients who would have been gone to the ED had their problem solved from the comfort of their home. Another great example to me is we use video to have a stroke-trained neurologist looking at all 20 hospitals in Northern California. And any patient coming in who may be having a stroke, that individual gets involved immediately. What happens in most hospitals? The ED doc sees the patient, contacts the neurologist. The neurologist has to come. That's a delay in care. The faster you give a clot-busting drug, the faster the patient gets better. The problem, though, is that the clot-busting drug can also hurt the patient if you give it to the wrong individual. That individual now has shortened the time for the patient arrives so they get the medication under half an hour. Across the United States today, it's over 30 minutes. You know, it's interesting to me that when I go to meetings and give talks, number one question I get, why do doctors hate technology? And I explained that doctors don't hate technology. Doctors love technology. What they hate is technology that actually adds no value and slows them down. And that is the situation that exists with much of technology today. We need manufacturers to create devices that are going to solve problems for doctors and patients. They don't exist today, but they could. To me, the big step will be when the manufacturers have the courage, and I want to use the courage because they don't do it today, not because of technological reasons. They don't do it today because they're afraid of the malpractice implications of taking a variety of wearable devices and not sending a huge amount of data to the doctor's office that the doctor doesn't really want. Not sending a hundred cardiac rhythm tracings that the physician can do nothing with, but instead has the device to integrate all of the input that it's getting and tell the patient, you look like you're pretty good today or you look like you're in trouble, get care. And maybe even more sophisticated, call your doctor's office versus 911. Now, why don't they do it? Because all of medicine is probability. With enough patients, someone will have a problem that the machine says didn't have a problem or vice versa. And it's that liability that causes them to not do what they can easily do to integrate devices. But the consequence, we have hundreds of people dying unnecessarily in order to protect them against that one patient who would have suffered a consequence. Yeah, I interviewed Dr. Ethan Bosch on the podcast, who is an oncologist. So obviously the wearables can be used with different risk strata, like a healthy patient with a, a Fitbit might be a whole lot different than an oncology patient who's on chemotherapy trying to find side effects. And Dr. Ethan Bosch did a 
trial on how to use those patient reported outcomes and actually increased survival time five and a half months. So, which is significant. It's huge actually amongst that patient cohort. So luckily, I think we're starting to see a turn there, at least with patients who are high risk to begin with. There's one thing that you said in your book, Robert, that I was fascinated by, and I'd love for you to give clarity around it. And that is using Siri, or I'm assuming any AI assistant, as the interface to tap into the latest evidence-based guidelines for physicians actually in the exam room. But I'm having some trouble kind of picturing how that would roll out in practice. Like, how do you envision evidence-based guidelines could be surfaced at the right time to a physician who needs them because they've got a patient who meets the criteria? The thought about artificial intelligence is that the biggest problem is obtaining information out of the 10,000 journals or whatever it is that exist. It's the fact, it's the sort of the Dr. House of the past, the individual who can diagnose a problem when no one else can. And we think that the biggest risk to our health is that there's some bizarre, unusual condition that we have that no one else has ever had. And it's not that those don't exist, but they are very rare. Most of the health problems we have in the United States, why we're last amongst the 11 industrialized nations, is that we fail to do the things that we know we should do. A device like Siri, and and let me differentiate for the listeners, essentially when you talk about artificial intelligence, there are different forms of it. A Siri-like device is an algorithm. It's created by a human being, and then it's put into a computer a sophisticated computer that helps that person accessing it to know exactly the right steps to go. That's very different than machine learning and even more different than deep learning. But staying within the algorithm itself, what we know as an example is that there's a way to control hypertension that gets a 90% control rate rather than 55%. And the fact that across the United States, it is so low, accounts for 40% of the strokes. The consequence therein is the machine could help the physician to be able to follow the algorithm. There's never going to be complete agreement amongst every physician. But what the data has shown, and by the way, it's not just in medicine, they've shown this in law and business, is that an algorithmic approach created by experts is superior to what we like to believe is that the intuition of the physician is so good that no machine can beat it. Consistently, the machines programmed with algorithms by expert physicians beat the individuals overall across an area. Now, what do we all think? We all think we're the best. You know, it's the the Wobegon effect. 90% of us think we're in the top half. It's just mathematically not possible. And if everyone followed the approaches that could be programmed into a device like Siri, every time you came in with a set of problems, Siri helped take you through the diagnosis and the treatment, what we would see is with much higher quality, with fewer complications and a lower death rate. It's just that psychologically, that's extremely difficult for physicians to accept. Ravi, you embody this fourth pillar, which is that this all must be physician-led. So talk a little bit about that and then maybe more importantly, how does that actually happen? I do use physician-led, but I want to be clear to the listeners, it's really clinician-led. The reason I talk so much about physician-led is that I think that the hardest part is getting the doctor to change practice. 
I think it's easier to get a nurse or a physical therapist or a pulmonary, a technical person to be able to change. The physicians have built into our this culture do no harm. And in the same way that the research and the psychology has demonstrated this resistance to change, not because doctors don't want to get better, but in some strange way, it's because they're afraid because what's worked in the past seems safer. We certainly know from the most recent Nobel Prize Award in behavioral economics that what affected us in the past has overemphasis going forward. And so changing physician behavior, I see as being so important and so difficult. That's why I tend to focus on it. And physicians are not taught leadership. In an article I wrote from the New England Journal of Medicine, I talk about how I believe that in the fourth year, every medical student should spend a month in the business school learning leadership, learning how to create a team, learning how to help others to exceed their potential so they can help you to exceed your own. There are skills that can be taught and they're not there. Healthcare is 18% of the GDP of the United States. We spend more on healthcare than the entire nation of India spends on everything for its 1.2 billion people. We spend all this money and we don't have a system. We don't have a structure in most communities to be able to organize that type of integration, to bring physicians together. We don't have a system that allows dollars to be allocated on a basis besides simply volume, but to actually focus on quality. We don't have a system that actually takes technology and uses it in ways so that patients have the same convenience in their medical care as in their travel, as in their retail. We simply do not have any of those pieces in place. And to do that will require leadership. And as I said, it's going to require leadership by people who have business degrees. It's going to require nursing leadership. It's going to require physical therapy leadership, but it's going to require very much physician leadership. And we just don't train people today in the United States to be able to provide that for their colleagues and in their communities. If you were going to sum up how you would envision those in the healthcare industry use what we've covered here today moving forward, do you have any sort of concise advice? What do you think needs to happen here as a highest priority or what is actionable about what you've just said? I believe that change will happen. In every other industry, what you see is disruption. And disruption is a process by which the old way dies off and the new comes in. And I teach in the business school lots of examples. And in every one of them, as in healthcare today, the people in the industry don't change. And it's not that they're not aware of it. I mean, it's impossible to read a medical journal and not see something about high cost and low quality. But it's that today is so good that they don't want change to happen. Order Books didn't want Amazon to come in and replace them. They're out of existence. Kodak didn't want filmless cameras to come in. U.S. manufacturers didn't want the Japanese to come in. Example after example after example. And I think that that's where American healthcare is. I think change is going to happen. So the first thing I would say to the physicians and to the hospital, this is the time to change. Don't wait for disruption to occur. Debbie Shetty is a friend of mine. He's a heart surgeon trained in the United States. He runs 11 heart hospitals in India. He does the surgery for $1,800 a case right now. When I saw Debbie last Thanksgiving, the day I was there, his teams, he has five teams, did 37 heart surgeries. 
37 surgeries, including a heart transplant. His results are better than almost any hospital in the United States today. His costs are dramatically less. Why is that? Because he has the volume, because he's integrated. He actually has technology, information technology, far better than the United States today. Now, I don't think very many Americans are going to go to India. But Debbie built a hospital in the Cayman Islands. It's going to be a 2,000-bed hospital on an island of 50,000 people. You only need about 12 beds for the 50,000 people. The Cayman Islands is beautiful. White sand beaches, safe. They speak English as one hour from Miami Beach. He didn't build it for the rest of the world and the Cayman folks. He built it for the United States. And if the American healthcare system doesn't change soon, when the next recession comes, we might be seeing a very different, different result. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is to the large employers. I think the large purchasers can demand. Five years from today, we will not let our employees be taken care of by anyone who is not integrated, who has not brought together both primary care and specialty care and hospital care, that is not able to be paid on a prepaid capitated basis, that it doesn't make available all of a patient's information at every single point of contact and preferably being carried by the patient wherever he or she may not go and has a leadership structure capable of implementing change. I think if the large purchasers started to demand it, we would now see the change happen. And let me tell you one final piece. I didn't say about the end of my father's life. My father, several years later, needed a procedure done. At that time, he was on some anticoagulation for one of the complications he had developed, and he had to have it stopped to get the procedure done. My brother and I get a phone call in the middle of the night. My dad's had a stroke. We get on a plane that night. We fly to Miami. We go there to his hospital room. There he is. He's tied down. He has a tube breathing for him through his uh, mouth. Line of doctors out the door. There's the ENT doctor who wants to do the tracheostomy. There's the GI doctor who wants to put in the feeding tube. The neurosurgeon wants to take out part of his skull to allow his brain to expand. My brother and I look at the x-rays. My dad's not getting better. My dad's not going to want to live like this. We say no. We say no. Thank you so much for the care you provided, but we don't want anything else done. Next two and a half days, my father's in the hospital. Not a single physician comes by. There is no CPT code, no ICD-9 code for compassion. There's no way in the current healthcare system doctors get paid for comforting a family in its time of greatest need. I wrote mistreated why we think we're getting good health care and why we're usually wrong for the patient, for the patient and all of us. But what I've learned since writing it, as I've learned is going around, is the system is as problematic for the care deliverers as for the receivers of care. The time to change is now. That's my big message to all of the people in the healthcare world. Don't wait for disruption to happen. Make the changes now. The American healthcare system can be the best in the world but accept the fact that today it is simply not. Dr. Robert Pearl, author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for an amazing discussion. It's always great to have physician leaders point the way to a better system, and you do that as well as anyone. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show. 
so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.